Hello again. Welcome to Planet Beyond, a podcast brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. Today I'm joined by some very knowledgeable guests to talk about ocean science. We only have one planet, and really there is just one ocean, which many believe holds the key to a safe and livable world. Now, the statistics around human population growth are well known. The UN predicts that we will have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. There's a lot of space needed and a lot of mouths to feed. And the vast majority of this food comes from the land. We know an awful lot about the land, but the same cannot be said about the ocean that covers 70% of the planet. The ocean offers mankind considerable energy, food and medicine potential. But we have only observed 4% of the deep ocean and directly mapped 20% of the ocean floor. If we now factor in that human activity has contributed to a decline in ocean health and climate change is exacerbating disaster risk worldwide, improving the health and understanding of our world's oceans is critical to building the needs of the growing human population and maintaining the populations of all other life forms in our ocean. In January of this year, The United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development was officially launched. It is a multifaceted initiative to develop a common global framework for ocean science, with the aim to help reverse the cycle of decline in ocean health. As always, we're going to hear from the people that lead. Our guests are Dr. Vladimir Ryabinin, the Executive Secretary of the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of UNESCO, his colleague, Alison Clausen, a Programme Specialist on Deep Ocean and Marine Policy Issues, and Dr. Matthias Jonas, Secretary General of the International Hydrographic Organization. So let's understand where we are. Vladimir, is the ocean health declining? John, thank you very much. I'm very happy with your introduction uh, to you. myself. So let's just move to the substance. And indeed, like you mentioned, we live on the planet ocean. And, you know, uh, and this is really surprising for everyone because, you know, they really, when they look at, in the window, and I'm just in Paris, and when I, what I see is just buildings and some trees. I don't see the ocean. People only love what they understand. And we don't understand the ocean. So that is our work, our profession, to understand it better. And in 2015, all United Nations agreed on the Agenda 2030, the Agenda of Sustainable Development. The idea is that we would like to live happily and not deprive other generations that are going to come from the same ability. And ocean is a part of that picture. And already in 2016, the first assessment of United Nations very clearly stated that the humankind is running out of time to start managing the ocean sustainably. We do pollute the ocean. Everyone knows about plastic. Uh, Everyone even knows about nanoplastic, microplastic, but not many people know about uh, medications that are distributed in water. So now people uh, actually don't know what that fish basically swims in, in, in a solution that has a lot of medications in there. 
So not many people know about this. Ocean is full of unknown. Uh, uh, so uh, of unknown things. Ocean is non-transparent to optical waves. You know, it's a little bit transparent. It's not transparent to radio waves. Because of that, we need our own observations. We need to understand what is happening. And we're really far from that. I think uh, Matthias will definitely contradict your statement that we know 4% of the depths of the ocean or 4%. Uh, but I think indeed, uh, we don't understand enough about the yeah. largest ecosystem on our planet. And the largest ecosystem is in big, big trouble. How much trouble? Alison? We, we don't want to be melodramatic and we don't want to, you know, create panic, but we're really talking about the future of life as we know it if we don't get it right for the ocean now. Wow. We are really at a tipping point? Help us understand why this is so critical for humanity. I mean, the ocean, what does it do? It's climate regulation, right? I mean, climate change, thankfully, is now becoming something that is much more mainstream, that people can talk about, understand, are willing to take action. But still, nobody knows the role that the ocean plays as our, you know, probably our primary ally in the in the fight against climate change. You mentioned food as well. And, and here we're talking not about just going down to the supermarket and getting the fish fillets and trying to eat more healthily and, 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 and move away from land-based proteins, but we're talking about hundreds of millions of people who have no choice. I worked for a long time in Madagascar and in some of the coral reefs there, people are eating small fish that are five or 10 centimeters long because that is all that's left on the coral reef. And these are the fish that are essential to the functioning of the, of the reef. They're not the predators anymore. They're down to the, you know, the last, the last step in the, in the value chain. We often find this, don't we? That people are forced Human beings and animals, other animals are forced into these kinds of situations where it's one or the other, and it's not the optimum solution. No, and it's it's so hard to, to, to get that optimum solution because you're talking about some really difficult choices. And I think when it comes to the ocean, the, the point that Vladimir made about people just don't get it. It's just too big and it's unknown and it's scary and it's expensive to do research and it's difficult to re do research, but we just don't, I mean, we just don't have the choice anymore. If we are really going to look at seriously around the 2030 agenda, if we're really serious about protecting the planet and the ocean for future generations, we don't have the choice. We need the knowledge to help us make those trade-offs, to make those compromises, and they are not going to be easy compromises sometimes. And it's going to take a lot of debate and a lot of discussion and a lot of diverse actors in the room. And that's one thing that the Ocean Decade is trying to do, is trying to pull together these different actors so, so that we have private sector actors, we have the NGOs, we have government, we have the United Nations, and of course we have the scientists who can all give the information needed to make some of these trade-offs and compromises. Matthias, you're a numbers man. You must have a view on what you're observing. Vladimir uh, pointed that the oceans are invisible, and that that's uh, very true by its uh, physical nature, but it's likewise true for the policymakers. So, it is too less visible uh, for those who are in charge, who, uh, who have access to resources and uh, to the distribution of resources. And I mean, that might may sound a bit strange in your ears, but um, the Ocean Decade is also a, an approach for political lobbying, a positive lobbying for the relevance of the oceans. And uh, 
Alison said, we, we, we need to know, we need to understand. And I think that's exactly the, the sequence. Yeah. Before we can understand, we need to know. And how can we need to know? We, uh, we, 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 we need to know? We need to know more about all of the, 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 the uh, physical, chemical and biological aspects of this of the seas and oceans, and then we can understand the greater underlying processes, the impact and the level of their changes. Is this impact just about the ocean? Or is the ocean something we need to understand for other reasons? And I'm thinking climate here. So indeed, everything is connected. So, you know, because we work in the United Nations system, we, we hear many ambassadors that are quite happy and proud to say that 92% uh, of excess heat generated by the uh, excessive uh, greenhouse gas uh, concentrations since the industrial revolution ended up in the ocean. But you know, this is, brings us to what uh, Matthias was saying, that we need to understand how we obtain that number. So, you know, we obtain that number because there are some special devices called Argo floats. And because of that, you know, uh, Argo floats were sent in, in, in water, then they communicated the, the uh, recordings through the satellites, then the, this information was assembled. It was actually not only assembled, but assimilated in different models. And then we had additional estimates of the temperature of the water. Then we were able to deduce the, the heat content of the water. And then we deduced that number. And that number is very important because, you know, if 92% didn't end up in the ocean, then the, our planet would be basically in the state of fire, like we have now in in, in Western USA, like uh, like uh, in 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 British Columbia, in Canada. So you know everything is indeed connected, and indeed we learn that in order to address issues related to climate, the ocean health is equally important, and we have to find a way through psychological economic means to save our planet on which 70%, as you rightly say, is the ocean. That's the challenge. And if I can perhaps just add to that and really wanting to emphasize what Vladimir just said, it is obviously the, you know, the, the ocean science, the mapping, the data, the, 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 the biogeochemistry, etc. But it's also understanding that human connection to the ocean. It's, it's really looking at that through a scientific perspective as well and, and understanding what are those um, incentives, whether they be political, uh, economic, cultural, that can incite behaviour change and the way that we relate to our ocean. And there we also need to bring in Indigenous and local knowledge, which, you know, is such a fundamental piece of this of this whole landscape of when we're trying to better understand the ocean. It's understanding the way different cultures relate to the ocean, the way that different cultures value the ocean, and really trying to, to bring those different knowledge systems together so we can get a sense of what is that emotional connection, how does it affect our behavior towards the ocean and how can we use that and, and, and work with that so we can increase both institutional, systemic and individual behavior change towards the, towards the ocean. Alison, that's one hell of a wish list. Certainly is. But again, do we really have the choice? So my impression is that this discussion in our community is sometimes more driven by the environmentalists. Reality of life shows that the development is more driven by e economists. So, and we cannot ignore that. Of course, we all now aware of, of climate change and the, the effects this might have on all of us on a global scale. And there's no doubt that we need to know what is the interrelation of the oceans with climate change. 
because the ocean, it is the biggest machine of this planet. So it, it produces climate finally, if you want. And if, if this machine is not well maintained, then the climate uh, is affected. But back to my, my point, protein is coming from, from the oceans. And as a matter of fact, with those billions of, of uh, people on this planet with a growing number, I think the forecast is that that the, the provision of protein uh, for for all uh, all uh, all humanity has to increase to 30 percent or, or something like that. I'm not that good in that numbers, but it's clear we have to we have to see how we treat we treat the oceans economically, but in a way that we hopefully do not damage more that we, we, we try to preserve what is left untouched and that we ideally repair the damages we made in the past. So, so and, we, and, and for that, we have to make ocean knowledge productive exactly along those three uh, lines. So this really is a big ask. I mean, that balancing act that you're describing there, Matthias. And Alison, Referring back to also your wish list, how is this decade of ocean science addressing this? We agree it's hugely ambitious, but again, we're, you know, we're also not starting from zero, right? We're starting from decades and decades of ocean science and a huge community of dedicated, committed, amazing people. But how, you know, how is the def decade really going to try and break this down? I think, first of all, the decade is really trying to provide a framework. It is not coming out and saying, hey, we've got all the answers. You just need to do X, Y, and Z, and all our problems are fixed. It is trying to provide a framework to organize different communities to come together so that both scientists and the users of that knowledge, whether it be the policymakers, whether it be the fisheries managers, whether it be the governments, whether it be the conservationists, are co-designing the research questions and identifying together the most important knowledge gaps and trying to work together to see how we can fill those knowledge gaps. And so if you think of the decade as a framework, as a convening framework for the co-design of the identification of the most urgent knowledge needs, the generation of the knowledge, and then the uptake and the use of that knowledge, that's how we really see it. We're providing a tool, a mechanism. Layered on top of that, we've tried to identify what we call the ocean decade challenges, which are our, you know, based on the three-year sort of highly participatory, consultative around the world, virtual meetings, in-person meetings when we could, trying to break it down to what are the 10 big challenges at the moment for ocean science. And we got a whole range of things. So they range from of course ocean climate but also to fisheries to sustainable ocean economy they look at the infrastructure they look at data and it's it's about both generating the data but also making that accessible and getting it in the right hands these challenges also focus on capacity development, they focus on coastal resilience, and they focus again on behavior change because all of this is very nice, but if you don't change the behavior again at the systemic or individual level, you don't get that result. Wonderful. Matthias, you're one of these contributors, aren't you? My argument is what you, what you, uh, what you do not monitor, you, you cannot manage. So you, you need a constant flow of of information uh, to do now cast and 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 forecast and um, hy hydrography was 
for a long time misunderstood only for for measuring the depths. But what what we see, and that maybe the ocean decade helps us to uh, accelerate this transformation process, that we understand hydrography to the lesser extent. How is the seafloor to, towards the question what is in the water? So what what is what is uh, the, the, the physical condition of the, the water column and in the oceans we talk about thousands of meters and that's exactly difficult to measure as, as Vladimir already um, explained earlier but uh, what we see today is that the technology is making uh, great strides and that has really changed the situation Many of these stakeholders coming together under the decade of ocean science are not newbies to the block, are they? Hasn't the IHO just celebrated its 100th anniversary, Mateus? Well, actually, I, I'm too humble to, to, to say that. We, 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 were, we were actually the, the first, the very first, who proposed to have a systematic survey and measurement of ocean ocean parameters. So this idea was born as a consequence of all those campaigns on, on land side. And then they arrived in the end of the 19th century to the idea saying what has been done on the continents should be redone uh, at, at sea. And uh, it, it all started with a commercial approach. So the first uh, motivation to, 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 to systematically map the oceans was cable laying precisely cabling between uh, 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 Ireland and, and North America. And a Scotsman, William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, proposed to use a piano wire for, to, to measure the depths of the ocean systematically. And in a way, uh, that hasn't changed very much. One of the most recent activities of Fugo, if I'm correct, was to assist Facebook and Amazon now to lay yeah, even yeah. bigger cables for yeah. for internet connectivity right. on a on a global scale. So it it repeats to to some extent, and and IHO was was instrumental uh, in that not not in the in the activity itself, but in the allocation, the gathering, the processing of this information, and we provided a, an early form of open data policy already. So. The first uh, general biometric charts of the ocean issued in 1904 was subsidized by Prince Albert the first of Monaco and he gave that chart set away for relatively little money he he paid he paid a lot for 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 the printing and, and gave it uh, more or less away for nothing and is this something that the ocean decade is very much promoting, this openness about data as a source? Is that a fundamental part of going forward here? Yeah, but I would like to, to preempt what I'm going to say about the data uh, with uh, something that I think is philosophically relevant. You know, we have been a pretty bad animal to other animals and to the planet. And, you know, the idea is that we have to improve. So the COVID situation... Uh, helps to understand what is happening with people. Empathy is, I think, the most important driving force for the future. And if we manage to uh, manage to collect good people, 
conscious people, knowledgeable people, intelligent and honest people behind a good idea, then the spillover effect will be occur uh, occurring not only in the ocean, but also in many other spheres. So the ocean decade will help more than just ocean science. But what about sharing more data? And, you know, one element of this is uh, uh, indeed uh, understanding that uh, by sitting on the data, by hiding what you know from others is not helping in the big run, in the big sense. So we need to explain to the animal that it's much better to be open, to conserve the planet, to conserve the ocean and live longer and happier. So, and, and, but how to implement it in, in, the, in the moorings that we're putting in the ocean, in measurement of ocean depths, uh, in how to, is, is, a, is a big uh, paradigm. And that's exactly what we are trying to understand, how to move forward with positive elements in the ocean on the planet, between people, and the, the, and then if we are successful in this, then data sharing will, I think, will come automatically because it will be just part of the overall changing paradigm that we're trying to achieve. It's a bit of a virtuous circle, isn't it, really? Because what we need to do is share the information, share the data, so that we can see the water column that Mateus described. We can see what the bottom of the ocean looks like. We can see these wonderful features and then all of a sudden people get engaged and they're, and they're more motivated to share and around we go. But it's jumping in, stimulating that process and inspiring people. This is a key role for private sector as well. And particularly some of, you know, some of the, the, those private sector partners who are willing to take that risk and be you know, the early adopters, the, the, those that are engaged earlier on than others and be showing the, you know, really showing, showing the way. Because you're right, I think it's once you get that critical mass, people see the benefits of the, the data sharing. And the decade's not about taking all the data and putting it in some big UN cupboard somewhere. It's about a digital ecosystem that is interoperable, that builds on existing networks, existing infrastructure that again, tries to find and fill those, those critical gaps. And in fact, one of the Ocean Decade challenges, in, in, in addition to the ones that Vladimir mentioned, is, is also about a building a collective digital representation of the ocean that uses information from the past and the present to be able to help us predict the, the, the future. And private sector is really going to be a key partner in, in being able to make that happen by providing access to some of those, you know, those key data, data sets that aren't always uh, readily available. It always takes guts to be that leader, doesn't it? Indeed, it, indeed it does, yep. Definitely, and, and and we're seeing that, and you know, we we we, we have a, a great working relationship with Fugro and and others that are willing to, you know, to to explore these options and take these risks and be those first ones, and also very importantly, for for us as a as a UN agency, be doing peer to peer awareness raising and peer to peer networking, so that you've got private sector talking to private sector about the benefits of being engaged in the decade, because sometimes it's a message that passes much more easily when it's that sort of conversation rather than a UN agency. Mateus, maybe you can come in here because the IHO has a century of data gathering experience. I think that's since we are more engineers than scientists at the IHO, what, what, what could help as well is to create technical means to, to make all those masses of data interoperable. That means you can mesh up the information 
And and a good analogy for me always is the mobile phone. So this thing can do everything plus phoning because uh, it is based on common standards. And the, and the second thing is that we, we must bring in continuity in our measurement program. So science is project-driven. That has an impact on the willingness to share the information, whereas what we do is driven by governmental programs. It is repetitive. It is systematic. It never stops once it has started. So, and in the best case, we could do a merger of those two worlds of this project-driven uh, generators of new insight, new methodology, new ways to measure, new ways to understand with this systematic approach which covers regions and brings the diversity of information of all the different domains together. And that only works under an open data policy. But what about some of those problems that Vladimir talked about right at the beginning? How can data help with these? Perhaps you can give us some examples of what data we need and how it can help save the ocean. Vladimir already uh, pointed to the problem of, of microplastics. So, so far, we are not able to measure that. We, we don't have really good um, measurements uh, to do that systematically. So I, I hope within 10 years time, we have developed technology to do that and do that systematically and prevent more pollution based on this scientific insight. I hope to see an all-embracing digital marine data model in place based on IHO's S100 framework. If all sorts of marine data are formatted according to this paradigm, they would be fully interoperable and could be easily meshed up. For our ocean mapping program in collaboration with the Seabed 2030 project, I hope we can achieve nearly full global coverage in a decent accuracy and resolution. For that, we need more and better data. We hope on contributions from all actors. Among them are ships of opportunity. For them, we have developed our crowdsource buffimetry campaign. Seafarers and shipping companies are very motivated to contribute, as far as I know. But so far, only 30 coastal states allow this sort of citizen science in their respective territorial waters. I hope that by end of a decade, all of the almost 100 IHO member states give permission for. And for the Blue Water, I hope that the IOC's Argo program can establish a regular routine that the descending floats hit the seafloor and report depth and position back to us. This would be particularly helpful in remote areas such as the Southern Ocean. So, you know, the first example that I've seen firsthand, and again, coming back to the time I spent in Madagascar, was was really local catch data, which was collected. So we had, there was a community-managed marine protected area, and the local communities were, were trained with very simple tools to collect over every, every month, but over a period of many years, catch data. 
and the effort, um, effort, uh, the fishing effort that they've been putting in. And from that information, we were able to understand patterns, seasonal patterns of fish availability. We we're unable to understand spatial patterns of fish availability. So at a, quite a small scale, you were getting that sustainable ocean management that Vladimir was talking about through very simple data collection and, and scientific tools. Now, maybe it wasn't something that could be published in a, in a, in a prestigious scientific journal, but for me, that's what the decade's all about, right? It's getting the data that you need in the right hands so that people can take the, the, the decisions. And I think a, a, another example, and this comes back to Matthias's point about economics and, and having to take that into account at every stage of the decision-making process, is around blue carbon. And UNESCO has recently released a, a new report on, on blue carbon and the, 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 the stockage um, benefits and, and values of blue carbon. And it's that sort of science that is going to help in those trade-offs we mentioned right at the top of the show, in those economic decisions and those difficult compromises that we're going to have to make, because we have the science to say, this is the carbon benefit, this is the climate change benefit of some of our marine and coastal ecosystems. These are some great examples of power of data, but but do we need to challenge some of the ideas around how data will be used, considering that it was once something only gathered by military organizations? I recall as I was a child in the 60s and 70s, so, so many of those uh, scientific missions in the oceans, they did some civil things, but it was always the impression that they gathered data for defense issues as well, so the, the submarines of the two big blocks, they did need this in information. And uh, this is uh, still a bit of a problem f for us, because there is a tradition to, to, to see uh, seabed information or ocean information as of strategic value for, for defense uh, purposes. So we could unleash more potential here if that would be more common sense on the great actors that this the greatest strategic value is now to compose the bigger image out of those many data. Basically, you know, we have submarines uh, in, in, in the ocean and they are hiding in certain areas and temperature salinity determines uh, the speed of sound in water. And because of that, this is basically having very strategic, as they think, uh, impact on the safety of, of, of the military operations. But the, the, the truth is that, you know, uh, I would say zillions and zillions of uh, dollars, rubles, uh, marks, euros were spent on, on developing this capacity. If we compare this with what was spent on the ocean, um, uh, I cannot forget a, a, a map that is uh, in the uh, general hall of the General Assembly of the United Nations. A huge circle is showing how much humankind is spending on weapons to kill itself. A little circle is showing how we spend uh, money on disarmament and just a dot how we spend money on, on, on save our lives. So I think that the, the success of the decade will be the changing paradigm in which the ocean is mainstream 
the science is mainstream. People are having good foundations for taking good, peaceful decisions towards the future. And this is exactly what we're trying to create, to create in, in big numbers. Of course, it will manifest in certain things. It will manifest in new data, in better predictions, in better orientations for decision making, uh, in better fishery management. So one way of presenting the success of the decade is that we have to move on the basis of science and observations to sustainable management of the ocean space and resources on the coast and also uh, uh, in, in, in water. So that is scientifically managed ocean for me is the picture of the future and the success of the decade is to take us there. I, I couldn't agree more. I was not going to say it as eloquently, but um, you know, maybe, I don't know if it's just an Australian phrase, but for me, success it, it, the ocean becomes a no-brainer, right? It, it, you know, if you're talking about policy, if you're talking about resource decisions, if you're talking about educational career choices, if you're talking about management decisions, at the end of the decade, we shouldn't always have to be putting our hand up and say, don't forget about the ocean, don't forget about the ocean. The ocean is just a fundamental part of all of these global discussions and processes and, and decisions. And I think, you know, that, yes, again, it's very aspirational, it's very ambitious, but giving the ocean its right place in humanity and in political frameworks and in resource allocation decisions is something that we should all be aiming for and hopefully something that we can make big steps towards by the you know by the over the next 10 years by the end of the decade we're already six months into the first year of the ocean decade what early progress can you share with us Alison? So we've had a, a wonderful response so far to, to the decade after only six months really of, of being in operation. Late last year, we put out the first call for decade actions, which is the mechanism that we're really using to get people to submit their ideas, whether they're big global programs or more local scale um, initiatives or activities to the decade. And we had nearly 250 responses to that, which means 250 groups of people around the world took the time to come together to discuss, to develop, to submit through our somewhat unwieldy submission system, their ideas for decade action. So I think, you know, that in itself has been such a signal to us and I hope to everybody that the decade is already generating action and enthusiasm. And from that, we've been through a very detailed process, a thorough technical review, looking at all those submissions. And we've been very, uh, very honored to announce the, the first set of major decade programs that are going to, you know, be some of the first building blocks of the decade. These were announced on World Oceans Day this year on the 8th of June. They, there are 28 global ocean science programs that groups around the world have put together, which have been endorsed as decade actions. There are six major programs led by UN agencies, as well as dozens and dozens of contributions of, of, of in-kind resources to the decade. And this is only the start. This is just the first batch. There are other analyses still going on. There will be second, third, fourth, fifth calls for decade actions. But already after six months, we have over 30 major global ocean science programs with groups of people behind them that are that are ready to 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 get going and take action and 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 start to contribute to fulfilling these ocean decade challenges so there is hope that we can overcome all these significant challenges and gather the science that we need for the ocean that we want yes there is a hope 
uh, and would like to say that uh, in the deliberations of a special group of, of people, 14 heads of state of government, high-level panel for sustainable ocean economy, with all the science that is supporting this work, there is now a vision of what can be done, what can be done in the ocean. So once again, I just would like to quote from the final report. Six times more food from the ocean, 40 times more renewable energy from the ocean, cover, uh, uh, covering 20% of the carbon gap required to, to reach the most ambitious uh, uh, objective for the Paris Agreement, and almost an order of magnitude more money coming from the ocean in terms of wealth. And that is based on science. And so by, by managing the ocean, and this is helping, uh, hap happening already, because 14 heads of state of government already committed their countries to managing the exclusive economic zones by 2025 on the basis of plans. They are calling on others. So this, the paradigm is changing. The tide is turning. And this is really nice to observe and to be also associated with that movement, I think we can really make it. And, you know, this is actually uh, a huge revelation that makes our lives full and, and happy because I think we can really change the tide. There are signs of, of positive change in, in what we see. That is wonderful to hear, Vladimir. And, and thank you and Alison and Mateus for joining Planet Beyond today and sharing your insights on ocean science. We all know that we only have one beautiful, fragile planet, and there is one global ocean, which we must seek to understand in order to preserve it for our future generations. So until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>